Hey, Nick. Hey, Teddy. Do you remember WWJD bracelets? Oh, God. I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast where we explore artifacts from turn of the millennium Christian culture. So, Nick, did you have a WWJD bracelet? I had many (laughs) WWJD bracelets. In my memory, no one I knew who had one had only one. Same. Yeah, that tracks with my experience as well. We had them on our wrists and we had them on our ankles um, and we had them in all the colors and all the shades and all the patterns. Do you remember what yours, your favorite one looked like? Yes, vividly, actually. Okay. What was it? My favorite one was this neon yellow fabric WWJD bracelet uh the letters were like that like painted on so they wore off so quickly right and in the clasp wasn't like a normal like clicky clasp it was a clicky clasp where the like outcut that the thing popped into was a cross oh clever and you know the color would have aged really well because like neon neon colors are back so Yeah. yeah Um, so for our audience who I'm going to guess this is extremely unlikely, but for anyone listening who may not remember what a WWJD bracelet is, can you remind everyone? Yeah. So WWJD stands for what would Jesus do? Uh, and uh, the question was posed as sort of a, a like moral thought experiment. Um, And the bracelets were, I mean, let's just be honest, the majority of them were these like cheap Chuck E. Cheese style rewards that were this um, woven fabric about like a quarter of an inch thick. And they were always these like bright 90s colors, neons. And uh, I'm fairly certain that uh, my sister had a rainbow colored one at one point, although I think that that wouldn't fly these days. Talk about not aging well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they always they all had these like black little clasps and some of them had the, the cross thing and they were given out at youth group. I remember being at a youth event one time where the T-shirts that they shot out of the T-shirt cannon were wrapped with WWJD bracelets and held together. Nice touch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a great touch for the person that got like clocked in the head with the class, but right, right, of course, yes. All right, so great summary. So WWJD bracelets, little fabric bracelets, probably made in bulk in China. Um, <laughs> you <laughs> people had so many because they held up for about a week, and they had W period, W period, J period, D period question mark yes. written across them. Yep. We are going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the phenomenon that is WWJD bracelets, where the phrase started, how it sort of traveled, why it became a product, and what the product meant to the sort of era as a whole that we grew up in. Interestingly, however, uh, this concept, or I should say this particular phrase, far predates our 90s childhood. So, Oh, okay. The concept that is WWJD actually had two distinct periods of immense popularity. 
or as we I joked earlier, it went viral twice. <laughs> uh, once in the 1890s, and then again in our in our uh, teenage years. So WWJD, the phrase, is actually based on a book, a novel that was written in 1897 by someone named Char- Charles Monroe Sheldon, and it was called "In His Steps." What would Jesus do? Do you have any familiarity with this? I don't actually. In just looking up like the loose details after you've mentioned it, it feels like one of those Pilgrim's Progress style books. It has that vibe to it from me. Um, but no, I don't have any like frame of reference. And I could just be forgetting. Yeah. In some ways, it's odd that neither of us remember it because it feels very homeschooly. It mm-hmm. feels like the perfect thing that you would replace the scarlet letter with or something, you know, <laughs> in like a classic like lit course, you know, like yeah. Christian lit course, right? So it's a best-selling religious fiction novel. It was published first in 1897. It has actually sold more than 50 million copies. Wow. So technically it ranks as like one of the best-selling books you know, of all time. It's been around and has been published a lot. And that's partly because the original version never had a copyright. And side note, Uh you will see as this progresses, there is a copyright problem looming over WWJD in a strange kind of way for like over a hundred some years. So um, so basically, it never had a copyright, meaning it was picked up just by everyone. And it's it's been published a million, you know, by so many different publications. It's also just free everywhere because of mm-hmm. that. I listened to it on on YouTube. Basic story. There's a main character who's a reverend. He has this small church and it opens with him on like a Friday morning, sitting around, writing his sermon for his congregation. And a homeless guy shows up at his door. And is basically like, do you have any work for me? Can I work for you and make some money? And the pastor's like, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any work. I have to get back to my sermon. Closes the door on him. Already the message is a bit heavy handed, right? So he's going Mm -hmm. back to work on his sermon. And then later, blah, blah, blah. It's a long thing. But the congregation finds out that this this man died, This, this homeless man died. And the pastor is like wrecked with guilt essentially, um, that he could have done something, Mm. that he should have done something. And it prompts him to create this sermon where he confronts the congregation and asks them, you know, what would Jesus have done? And then sort of tells them that he believes that for an entire year, they should take up this project of asking themselves every single day, multiple times a day, in every situation where it might apply, what would Jesus do? And that they should sort of strive to answer that for an entire year. The novel then takes a pretty predictable focus in the sense that it introduces then a bunch of characters, some of whom answer the question, you know, and and do what Jesus would have done, and then some who don't. And it sort of just follows, you know, this kind of cast of characters as, as they take up this project or don't take it up. That's where WWJD as a phrase originated in the 1890s. Interesting. Your your synopsis of that story really strikes me as the like template for a lot of contemporary Christian fiction, like particularly films I'm thinking of. Here's an inciting incident that connects to a community of people and then all their stories are told sort of in these little episodic. There's no like grand narrative. 
And if there is, it's just to facilitate all these side characters. And then it's like how they resolve their faith or their morals sort of thing. So that's really interesting that that like influences or at least is, is a, a, you know, a prototype. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the narrative is the question, really, that that's yeah. it's that's the, the meat of the story. And in some ways, it's kind of brilliant because it did prove to be sort of timeless, you know, mm-hmm. in faith circles. Right. So modern listeners of the 90s, but then modern listeners of today will find theme these themes probably pretty familiar. They're going to resonate with religious, you know, people probably always. It asks questions probably like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian citizen? Does the church reflect how Christ actually lived? You know, uh, what is the difference between sort of like virtuous platitudes and actually living out one's faith? These Mm -hmm. are timeless questions. But there was something really brilliant about, you know, that phrase, I think, as that which could sum it all up in Mm -hmm. a really, really neat way. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to, like, jump too far ahead in your notes, but like that, I think, is the thing that makes WWJD so ubiquitous in our memories in that culture. Is that just like I can use this phrase, the marketability of that phrase? Yes. Yes, which I'm not even sure Charles Monroe Sheldon knew at the time, given the lack of a copyright and all of that. I doubt he would have anticipated that. On that note, you know, like I said, it it sold millions of copies and it was pretty consistently read from the 1890s over the next 100 years. And then it got into the hands of a teenage girl (laughs) named Janie Tinkleberg, apparently. This is from a BBC article on the history of the WWJD bracelet, by the way. There are no, that I can see anyway, there are no like books that specifically explore the WWJD bracelet. And actually resources that condense the history are even a little scarce. So, but this was one Hmm. of the most cited articles. Okay. A religious scholar wrote this. So apparently it got into the hands of of this teenage girl. She read the book. She was really inspired in 1989. This is 1989. She talks to her youth group about it and she considers um, putting it on a T-shirt and giving it to everyone in her youth group, but ultimately decides that a bracelet would be more effective because it's the 90s and friendship bracelets are in, right? (laughs) Mm, And slap bracelets are about to be a Yes. So the gaudier, the more colorful, mm-hmm. ridiculous, you know, bracelets you can get are in in this era. We loved them, especially girls, I think, really love them. Friendship bracelets are in. So she gets this local company to print her 300 of them, WWJD, just for the people in her youth group. Then so she has the, the group wear them for 30 days. It's super successful. It sparks a little bit of this like community, you know, kind of engagement. And then, according to the BBC article, quote, others with more of a commercial eye than Janie spotted the trend, made their own and took the marketing to a national level. By the time she attempted to register her trademark, it was too late for Janie. For Janie. She could have college all paid for. For real. So that is to say, although we the phrase is from um, 1897, WWJD as we know it is all thanks to a teenage girl and friendship bracelets. So that's your that's the story. (laughs) 
a great story. There's a few like really interesting like patterns that I recognize early. Like, were there actually 300 people in her youth group, or did she just like produce that many for the sake of like, oh, this we're gonna have this many people that are gonna want them. And I like know. that sort of I thought of that too. I thought of that too. I was thinking of like my little like, you know, rural church in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. And I was like, 300. I don't even know if we got 300 at like our biggest events of the year, you know? Um yeah, for real. But maybe she was given that she was modeling it all for the friendship bracelet. There is a chance she was sort of going for the like everybody will get a bunch and like we'll like mm. talk, you know, we'll exchange different colors. And you know, I, I'm assuming yeah. there's some of that going on. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, like, depending on, like, the, the like, scope of the local shop, like, maybe they can only do things in larger bundles and whatever. Yeah. But that just, that struck me as interesting. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating to see how this, like, small sort of, like, gives me grassroots vibes of this phenomenon gets turned into a marketing sensation. I know, you know, yeah, like the ubiquity of this doesn't feel like, you know, <laughs> it almost has that very like capitalistic started in the garage narrative. Yes. Only shocker. It didn't end up benefiting Janie at all. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, um, It ended up benefiting like Barnes and Noble and Amazon. So that's usually how that story goes. Uh-huh. That's a great point because it actually far exceeds Janie's little neighborhood. There were so many products then with WWJD phrase throughout the early um, throughout the 90s and then like early 2000s. Seems like sales started to like slow down around the 2010 mark. We were pretty much at a I mean, um, in marketability standpoint, like more at a halt at that point. But in 19. So throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, if there was a product that you could slap WWJD on, it is highly possible that that product exists. <laughs> so there were bumper stickers, coffee mugs, stuffed animals, necklaces, rings, devotionals, journals, pretty standard Christian mm-hmm. book type stuff, right? There was also a WWJD TV Christian talk show where people like called in. Yes, called in and were like, here's how I live differently this week because of my WWJD bracelet. Um, Wow. There were numerous songs that asked the questions. There was a WWJD board game. Board game. Yes, that Christians presumably sat around and played on Friday evening. So I sent you the description from Amazon, which is just gold, golden. So could you read that for our audience? Definitely. And and for our listeners, Teddy knows this, but for our listeners, I'm a tabletop game nerd. I love <laughs> board games and and playing all sorts of things. So this is fascinating to me. You're gonna definitely want to go and, and get a get a get a copy of oh, this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. The Amazon description reads <clears throat> Designed to provoke thought and conversation among followers of the Christian faith. The very weird phrase. Uh, WWJD poses some tough questions. Starting with the situation cards, players encounter real problems in four categories. The world, the community, the faith, and friends. (laughs) Situations include alcoholism, (laughs) domestic abuse, cheating, and racism. Among other things. Oh my God. <laughs> what a weird, like, etc. 
among other things. Lesser dilemmas such as hurt feelings over a forgotten birthday are also addressed. Situation cards provide the player a choice among three answers, as well as the opportunity to come up with a different answer entirely. A fifth card category, reflection, asks open-ended questions. A reflection card might address cloning, abortion, or taxes. Wow. The players come up with their own answers to these cards using their faith as a guide. And if needed, the included spiritual guide. The answers are often then discussed by all players with the goal of deepening their understanding of Jesus. The goal is always to ask and deeply consider, all caps, what would Jesus do? Perfect. So my understanding after like looking at this up is that You could choose a card of those three categories, world, community, family, or friends. And then you would get a question. So like, is cloning your dog ethical, right? Right. According to Jesus, it would then give you like two potential answers that you would then choose from, or you could craft your own response and then you would all talk about it. Yes. Uh, I'm looking I'm not a gamer so I hope I got that right that sounds right I am I am looking at the board game on one of my favorite websites boardgamegeek.com where they have images of the board which is set up in an infinity symbol and you begin and finish in the same space but you go around the infinity circle oh my god where there are different categories much like in per- trivial pursuit where you land on a particular and then you have to answer that question the victory condition of this game is gaining points and winning particular tokens you have to collect the w the w the j and the d before you reach the finish line there's a token for each of those letters And then, yeah, interesting. It has one review. It has one star, if that can be believed. So it sounds like a blast. Um, You know, uh, abortion, taxes and cloning. I, you know, what more do you need for a weekend night? Right. Um, With alcohol. Old stone sober. (laughs) My favorite review, I just glanced down and my favorite review is only worthwhile for non-Christians if played tongue in cheek. Yeah, I was thinking there is a version of this that could be fun, ironic, played ironically. Right. Or as a drinking game, as another review and you suggested. Sure. Also, like the categories are the world the community the family and friends and now i'm picturing like there's all of those and then like the friends sitcom like there's just random like sitcom trivia thrown in which no doubt is probably a question is it okay for me to watch friends oh probably in this era right so so that's ridiculous but i mention it just to say that wwjd was freaking everywhere in the most ridiculous ways imaginable it prompted the the phrase was then revised and like tweaked to apply to all kinds of topics within the christian market so at the time you could find books and resources with titles like what would jesus eat what would jesus drink how would jesus raise your child what would jesus buy 
my personal favorite, what would Jesus deconstruct? <laughs> which is a 2006 book by John Caputo, which John maybe. Caputo. I yeah, will yeah. say this in defense of John Caputo. Okay. That okay. book is actually not a terrible Christian perspective on like postmodern philosophy. Sweet. Okay, good. I good. will say that he doesn't quite get all of it right, but it's as close to a Christian philosophy book can get, has gotten in my uh, uh, reading on like postmodern philosophy. Fascinating. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, I doubt it's as interesting as what would Jesus drink, but I'm sure. glad that I'm glad that it was, you know, you, you give it, you, you give it a thumbs up. Um, so I could truly, oh, hang on. Go- that's, that's qual that, that's qualified. <laughs> go now. I've gone too far. Right. So I could truly go on and on, but the idea here is that WWJD was not isolated to one product. It spread to nearly every industry imaginable and was not just marketed by like small independent bookstores. So you made the joke about like the grassroots made in your garage thing. Ooh, we totally lost that. Mm. I mean, clearly, right. So places like Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Amazon, also millions of these bracelets totally capitalized on this phenomenon. This might fit into a sort of broader conversation about the era that was this like exploding Christian market. I mean, do you see that like this? I I don't I don't think that this bracelet is like a one hit thing. I think this fits into like a far bigger market that like Christians were major consumers in and of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that tracks really well with most of the like history of uh, Christian subculture that I've I've read and, and experienced. You know, before this, I'd say probably starting in the 80s when everything became hyper commodified, you have this realization from both businesses and pastors that like, oh, the Christian subculture represents a substantial market share. So you have this like realization, okay, how do I make not necessarily a profit, but how do I tap into that marketing sensibility? And again, that's being a bit generous. There are definitely people who are like, how do I make money off this thing? Sure. But again, giving people the benefit of the doubt, like how do I use this newfound skill of marketing and commodification to reach as many customers in the same sense as like evangelism, right? Like, oh, evangelism is marketing. And there's this weird moment where like those two things harmonize. Right. In a very strange way. And, you know, in the late 90s is when you start to have like the CCM industry start to boom or the late 80s is when you start to see the CCM industry boom. Like we talked about in Jesus Freak. Right. right? You know, you have, you know, your um, your your Michael W. Smith's and your Amy Grant's and your Stephen Curtis Chapman's like sort of opening up this to an industry. And then the movie, the Christian movie industry cracks open around this time as well. Yep. So it makes sense that this like the coincides with all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's this era where it's almost like people start catching on to the fact that Christians make up a potential market and that they will buy items that signal, engage, proclaim whatever word you want to use their their faith. Mm-hmm. I actually remember having a vivid memory as like 
a middle schooler when there was another Christian bookstore that was built within my general neighborhood area, um, within like 20, 10, let's say 10 to 15 miles of my childhood home, there were now like three or four Christian bookstores. Mm -hmm. This is somewhat particular to like, I grew up in like, you know, very rural kind of Amish community. So in some ways, not surprising. Mm -hmm. But there were a couple that were more heavily commercialized and were chains. And I remember having this moment in middle school where I was like, how come I don't see Muslim bookstores or like mm. Buddhist books? Like as a kid, I was sort of thinking like, shouldn't there be like bookstores and stores for like all the religions, you know? And I think as a kid, what that was really like, and looking back on it, you know, what that was really tapping into was like, there's something about Christian culture that's been more heavily marketed than other religions. And I don't think it's just about sheer number because those religions have plenty of people in them. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe those, they do exist, but I feel like they're just not, I mean, what do you think? Is this just a case of me being like sheltered within my own community? So I wasn't seeing these things or is there something more marketable or has Christianity more marketed itself than other religious communities? I don't know. Mm. I, I think that's a really fascinating question and observation. I don't, I don't think there's a, a, an easy answer, but I think the answer lies somewhere in the amalgamation of like the boon of capitalism in the late 20th century. Um, or the, the, I should say the progression into a newer stage of capitalism in the late 20th century. Totally. Um, the evangelical Christianity in particular being sort of the dominant iteration of Christianity in America. Good point. Yeah. Like, like Christian nationalism, basically. Well, right. And I, I would even say taking it a step back before nationalism, like the impetus on Christians in evangelical circles is to evangelize, to market the faith, to bring more followers and consumers into the fold in a way that doesn't track with Buddhism or even Hinduism mm-hmm. or, or Hinduism or Islam, right? Like those, those folks are not trying to proselytize as heavily. True. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, again, there's that harmony of the evangelical or evangelicalism, or sorry, evangelism impetus with the marketing impetus of late stage capitalism. So I think that's a big thing. And then again, In the U.S., there's the nationalistic mindset of, oh, we are a Christian nation. And, and, you know, like there's this whole identity that has already been pandered to on the political level. So it makes perfect sense that it then like tracks into the mass market. Yeah. The conflation of Christian and American is so, you know, so significant that in some ways it's like, why wouldn't there be a Christian market? Right. It's just an it's just an American market. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, You know, the fact that I noticed it as a kid, I, I think I, I was sort of like, wait, does where's how come they don't sell journals? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it, it seems so pervasive to me. Yeah. And but because we were kind of taught that this is just what religions do. Right. Like, I remember, like, being given uh, uh, apologetic talking points for, well, here's how you convert a Buddhist, because they're going to try to convince you with their things. 
and and uh, Muslims are going to try to convince you with their things. So here's how you respond to that. And and it was sort of like this: you're going to be in this uh, a tug of war right. with other religions who are trying to corner the market from their perspective. Th- that's what we were told religions did. Yeah, that's a great point too. It's like the absence of the markets of these other religions sort of like contradicted the narrative I was given, which was that like the Christian market was in constant competition, right, with these other religions or that I would be constantly having to sort of negotiate with people of other religions or, you know, um, people were going to come and try to like replace my WWJD bracelet with, I don't know, insert Muslim. WWAD, what would Allah do? Right. Um, which never happened. Never. Um, instead, Amazon just made bank because. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, and, and you know, this this kind of, um, you know, without diverting too far from the, the bracelets and this specific artifact, this is sort of what I think hums in the background for me when I hear when I hear Christians folks talk about cancel culture in the entertainment industry. You know, the idea that, oh, Christian voices are being silenced and Christians don't have a platform when Christians aren't taken off of YouTube in in any like numbers show that Christians aren't taken off of YouTube in stark difference to other folks. There's Pure Flix, which is an entire industry, like a platform in and of itself that's hosting and producing its own content. And Christian movies are a billion dollar industry right that not just christians take part in right right but but there's the this is something that's trying to be taken away from us right that and that christians are particularly more targeted than anyone else like i actually have my i have major beefs with cancel culture right sure but it's not just impacting christians right if we were going to have a critique of cancel culture doesn't matter what religion you are you know this could be something that you know impacts you so but christians it's been so much a part of the narrative for so long that there is a level of persecution that we are we were (laughs) experiencing that is far greater than any other group of people Yeah. Um, and I think WWJD bracelets actually kind of tie into that in some ways. For sure. Um, and and this is, um, you know, this might be taking us into the next phase here. I, I don't know what you have planned, but for me, they always seem to be this sort of proclamation of identity. They're totally identity markers. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's actually a point that I'm only just a few few minutes away from making. So the only other thing I wanted to mention here was that. What's interesting about WWJD was that it did not stay solely within the Christian market. Like I said, it was sold in all of those secular markets as well. But interestingly, became so pervasive and so well-known and such a cultural touchstone that it was actually beneficial for even secular companies to play on the phrase. Because oh, interesting. How so? Well, yeah. So they... They use uh, so many companies use their own versions of the phrase. There were books such as What Would Shakespeare Do? What Would Wonder Woman Do? What Would Socrates Do? What Would Mr. Darcy Do? What Would Google Do? What Would Keith Richards Do? Just in case Keith anyone, Richards. Just in case anyone's wondering. Um, and people outside the church then tried to use the slogan to kind of make uh, statements against um, Christianity's stance on particular issues. So it would be like a 
you know, it would be on products. It would be on at demonstrations. There are loads of bumper stickers when we were, you know, teens during the Iraq war, who would Jesus bomb? I remember mm. where, um, who would Jesus deport that even, um, we even see that like pushing into the Trump administration. You know, I think what's so interesting about this is that there are those items. So, so far in our podcast, there have been items that have been like huge in the church and everybody who grew up Christian knows about them pretty mm-hmm. much. Ike has dating goodbye, Rebecca St. James, wait, whatever, those ones we've done already. But this one's really interesting because it's like, I think it had a greater cultural impact beyond the church um, than even some of the others did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is something I've seen. I was racking my brain trying to remember the specifics, but I I couldn't. But I remember it being the butt of a joke in in TV shows. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just one of those like a character would do something and they were all suspicious. And he's like, I'm just thinking, what would Jesus do? You know, and it was like right. the, it was it was like you said, ubiquitous. There's no other way to say it. WWJD is representative of this little bleed over in both directions between Christian culture and popular culture. Yeah. And I sure. wonder how much I wonder how much this particular artifact was responsible for that like idea of crossover content. In terms of I know crossover content is a specific thing now, but I mean, in terms of like, you know, those Christian bands who are like they're a crossover band. Are they singing about their girlfriend? Are they singing about Jesus? Right. right. Or like those T-shirts that like were like the Coca-Cola label, but it was like choose Jesus or the Reese's label. And it was Jesus and used all these marketing phrases from pop culture and mass culture in order to like hide but proclaim at the same time like this weird like cross existence pardon the pun do you know if that like i don't know what's interesting about the examples you just gave is that the origin story right of wwjd is the church Mm -hmm. you know it's not the church taking something from the secular world and reappropriating it and kind mm-hmm. of playing with it for a Christian message. Like the, I'm pretty sure I had like something to do with like, a, I had some version of a Coca-Cola and I also had some candy bar and I can't remember which one it was that then had like the logo, but it was like slightly, cha- I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about, slightly changed with then like a reference to a Bible verse right. because apparently that would quote provoke conversation with an ombre. Because everybody talks about everybody's T-shirts. Um, but, you know, what's interesting about WWJD is in, in some ways it did the opposite. The opposite thing happened, right? Mm, was that yeah. it belonged to the church and then it became so pervasive and so recognizable that then like secular companies took it from us. I keep saying yeah. phrases like us and we and that. I mean, you know, yeah, what I'm, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's like, all a little fuzzy. I, I think the only other time I can think of that happening and and there could be more that I just don't know, but I I kind of am reminded of like the not today Satan thing. I don't know if you know about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is that a product or just a phrase? Huh? Is that a product or just a phrase? It got market. Like it got marketed. My sister has a a keychain that says that on it and it was, but it's not like a, it like obviously not today. Satan was a church thing, but I, I feel like it was featured on like, RuPaul's Drag Race or something like that. Like somebody in a very clearly not Christian space used the phrase to be like, "Mm -mm, I don't have time to put up with this thing. Mm -hmm. And it sort of 
gained traction as like a memeable thing. And that's the only time I can see that bleed over really like going that way. Yeah, I can't think of any other examples either. I'm sure they exist, but arguably WWJD might be the greatest example. Oh, for sure. Um, And I even saw an analysis from an economics professor who was saying that WWJD, you know, now we're speaking kind of outside my realm of expertise, but he claimed that it's actually kind of rare for a slogan or like a super marketable phrase to be a question Mm. that they're almost always statements, the most successful, you know, for very rarely um, do do questions become so popular. It's not the most go to rhetorical strategy. Right. But there was something about this that was really like it was short enough. It was concise. It was heavy hitting. It was, you know, it, it packed the right punch like it was just sort of perfect. But we don't see that happening all that much. We don't see such a question that that's mm-hmm. red, that's pretty rare in like the history of marketing. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. rare. That's oh. fascinating. I also am very intrigued by it losing its status as question, perhaps because of that. Yeah. Like, again, the the I remember it being a question. I remember those bracelets having question marks on them. And then I remember having one that just didn't have a question mark at one point. Like oh. It was just WWJD with no question mark. It just said that over and over around the bracelet. What would you just do? <laughs> yeah, like the, it drops the question mark and it's not a question mark anymore. It is a proclamation. It is a it is a statement by which I live my life or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's fascinating that like it's one of the few times where a question broke out yeah and a question that was relatively specific and meant to actually provoke a specific answer not this isn't like a rhetorical like how will this inspire you i don't know what other marketable questions are but like the idea was that you actually would have the answer Mm-hmm. question you know? yeah, it's like it would lead you to a specific action even if that action is indetermined when the question is asked right like, yeah or according to the board game you have three options right <laughs> i love the the non-committal part of that it was like here you have three questions unless you can come up with something better i know i know knowing the like um the difficult teenager that I was difficult philosophically, I'm sure I would have always opted for that last one and been like, well, it's complicated <laughs> you know? and then gotten into trouble. We would have had to have a youth meeting about it. Remember those days, Nick, theologically justifying everything. Everything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I used to. Yeah. <laughs> this probably doesn't come as a surprise. I used to like to wear like the T-shirts with the sarcastic things on them. And when I was in my brief stint at a private school at the end of uh, uh, high school, one of the teachers pulled me aside and said, basically, how do you biblically justify sarcasm? That memory unlocked. I had a similar situation at my homeschooling co-op where I got called out for my sarcasm in different language, like basically be like, is this God honoring? You know? Yeah. 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 But same idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, how does this promote the message of our Lord and Savior? You're not, you know, you're not putting him in the best light. And I'm like, I'm not him. (laughs) Right. Which I mean, I think is, is one of my biggest critiques of the question i mean and it's ultimately i think 
for me and probably for you, like one of the things that led me to and through my deconstruction was like the efficacy of such a question, you know, yeah. uh, like like how wieldy actually is that question? Right. How answerable is that question? I think there is even a critique and we can get to this. Like, is it even a question that's actually productive right. to ask? You know? Yeah. All right. So my thesis, right? Okay. So after giving some thought to my own experiences talking with you about the WWJD bracelet, as well as I actually polled our listeners on Instagram and Facebook, and I got a couple of responses, which is cool. So after after giving that some thought, I've developed a little bit of a theory of the primary functions or purposes that the WWJD bracelet, I think, served in this particular era. And I'll be interested in hearing, you know, if you agree. In true pastor form, I tried to do like alliteration, you know, nice. so, so we have some peace here. Okay. So I think the first thing that I associate with WWJD is that it was a proclamation. So mm. it was a visible material item that signaled one's identity as a Christian to the world. Absolutely. And I think that signaling, I feel like we've talked about this before about something else, maybe Maybe not, but the the signaling occurred on actually two levels. It was for believers and non-believers. So mm-hmm. in the first, it's to form unity and accountability with other Christians. So you like saw someone else with a WWJD bracelet and you signaled to them that you were also a believer and that felt good, mm-hmm. right? Like when I see someone else with a gardening bumper sticker or something. Right. But then probably even more so, it signaled to the secular world that you were a Christian and made them aware of that fact. So it reminded the secular world that Christianity was not obsolete, that it was still very much present in the real world. And perhaps most marketed to us was this idea that it would prompt conversations about Christ and potentially provide opportunity to share the salvation message with curious people. Does this resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember very vividly like having a conversation or a youth message or something like that, where the person said, well, listen, you'd wear a T-shirt with your favorite band on it. Why wouldn't you wear a T-shirt talking about Jesus or something like that? And it was like it feels like the source material for a lot of that, like uh, identity in Christ language where Mm -hmm. like, you know, you know, I'm wearing this shirt like for this band but I should wear a Jesus shirt or, oh, I'd wear a shirt with a video game character on it or a snarky saying or something like that. You should also wear this shirt or this item of clothing or this accessory because it should be incorporated in your branding of yourself. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So on one hand, that's a great point. It's an identification thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, I am a Christian. I, I, it it reminds me of when my best friend went to college. Um, she has pretty strong feelings about like style and fashion and she went to a community college. And when she transferred to a four-year college, she was like, what's with everybody walking around with like the title of the college on their shirt? Like, we all know you go here. (laughs) 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 Kind of reminds me of like, we all know you're a Christian, like you're here with us right now. But anyway, so it's a, it's an identifier, but then it also seemed to adopt this like identity as it's a witnessing tool. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a means 
by which we're going to prompt a conversation or an interaction that wouldn't have otherwise happened without this thing. Mm-hmm. There's this minister from Cherokee Bills Baptist Church in one of the articles about um, WWJD, and he says, quote, a lot of our kids have them and a lot of our adults have gone to wearing them now. They are identifying marks somewhat like old cross necklaces and they get people thinking. So, I mean, I don't know how common this was in your experience, but this was always the narrative was that wearing the cross, wearing the WWJD bracelet, wearing the T-shirt, whatever, that I think it rests upon a belief that I actually still embrace, even though I'm not in the church anymore, which is that people are noticing you a lot more than they actually are. (laughs) Yeah. People are thinking about you more than they're thinking about you and that people are curious about who you are on a fundamental, on a way, <laughs> in a way, they're just nuts. You know, like, I feel like as a kid, I was Heard just- here, folks. <laughs> Teddy says, no one cares about, cares about you. you. <laughs> the world would be a better place if we all embrace that. No one cares about really you. I mean, yeah. as a kid, I was just constantly told at any second. Someone was going to be like, there's something different about you. Can you tell me about your faith or mm-hmm. cross me? I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical here, but like, I honestly, I don't even know if that ever happened in like my 20 years in the church. If a person in a secular world came up to me curious about me being a Christian. Yeah, I don't think it's ever happened to me either. <laughs> I think like <laughs> all the times when someone has like, I, I've had a conversation with someone about being a Christian in those years. It was because I said something. It was because I brought it up or because I said, well, you know, as a Christian or, well, you know, my faith, yada, yada, or something like that. It was never like somebody going, hey, what's that you got there? Hey, you know what? As a matter of fact, I'll even take it a step outside of the church so it doesn't feel so targeted. I have almost never had somebody ask about my shirt or any of the like icons that I wear Unless they already like that thing. Yes, exactly. And that's what I mean when I say no one really gives a shit about anyone. No. You know, I mean, and we do it. Everybody does it. It's not just the church, right? We do it with politics. We do it with interests. We do it with all kinds of identifiers. But for the church, I think it's just more, it's just, there's more skin in the game because Mm -hmm. you're literally saving people from hell by initiating these conversations. Yes, it's back to the conversation that we've had like seven times already in our four episodes, which is like when you put cosmic eternal consequences on something, you immediately set the anxiety meter all the way up. Correct. And just like we've said before, if we are truly embracing the idea that you have the power to keep someone out of eternal flames, then yeah, your interaction with them at the deli is going to be, it, it should be meaningful, right? 100%. Like, and you should make it meaningful at any level, in any way that you can. So maybe given the, the dire situation that is evangelism in mainstream Christianity, maybe it actually makes total sense. You know, maybe it's actually a really logical thing. I don't know. Maybe. What the fuck does that mean? You know, so that was that. that's my sort of my my sort of first thing is that it, it's an it's an identifier. It's a way to proclaim one's faith. Um, it's a way to tell the world who you are. And it could be a way of just sort of promoting Christianity on a more like gentle, quiet, in a gentle, quiet way, alerting the world like, hey, we're out here. We exist because mm-hmm. everybody doubted that. Um, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and two, that it could at its best be like a witnessing tool that someone could be like, oh, tell me about your bracelet, you know, while mm-hmm. you're standing in the pharmacy or whatever. Yeah. And without belaboring what we're saying here, like there's a really go ahead, go ahead and do it. <laughs> Half the job of an academic is thinking mm-hmm. way too much. I had a conversation with someone, I believe this person as uh, anonymous as possible about uh, queer folks, specifically in terms of uh, this person kept using the phrase like shoving it in my face or like having to be so loud about their identity. Mm. And that's a pretty common talking point amongst Christian folks and conservative folks that like the the identification as queer is something that's being forced upon them. Totally. One of the most, one of the biggest and most persistent, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And we were actually having this conversation in terms of pronoun pins, which is a really, I think, salient Mm. analogy here is what ways are pronoun pins different than a WWJD bracelet or a, a a cross necklace is you brought that into this is like, it's an identity marker. And it's also, I think the pronoun pins are like an aid to the community as opposed to like a policing of the community. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like a, Hey, you don't have to worry. Like, like I hear so many people, how am I supposed to know what to, okay, cool. Pronoun pin, like just like little check. I know I, I at one of the the at the game store that I go to locally to play games, a lot of folks wear pronoun pins or pronoun necklaces. And it's just a lovely way that the community gives space to be gracious and good to each other. And it's one of the things I love most about that community. Mm-hmm. But I, but I see there's sort of this dissonance between what WWJD meant, where it's like, oh, here's a way that I throw my identity out there in order to have this proclamation to use the word you use, but I don't want that from somebody else. Yeah. How do you see that? Like those relating to each other? How do you read that? You know, I think this is a sort of problem that is really present in Christianity or in my, in my community of Christianity in the era we grew up in a big problem was that sometimes we were very invasive to others, that we were really overwhelming, that we were really suffocating in we our were a uh, lot as children. We, as Gen Z says, we were a lot <laughs> um, in terms of our faith. And then we also had really strict boundaries about other people doing the same thing to us, just about right. different things. And I will say, as always, you're a more optimistic, hopeful person than I am, <laughs> because I will admit that I I think Christian, I think my experience growing up in the church made me sort of cynical about mm. identifier type things. You know, I'm sure. definitely I definitely hold even the pronoun like I I hold a greater sort of cynicism and skepticism around the sincerity of those things. Mm. And I bet it's because of so much of it doing it for 20 years in the church, constantly yeah. sort of broadcasting to the public, here's who I am and what I believe. And it immediately is an eyebrow, ra- you know, I immediately raising my eyebrow a little bit at it all the time. Um, I love that. I, I love your reading of it. Um, something for me to work on, perhaps. Mm. But I think, yeah, in terms of the what you're saying, I think that there was a big problem, especially in our era of Christians, just honestly, many times 
being disrespectful to others and their boundaries and then being real pissed off when the secular world would kind of dare to act the same way. Okay, so I I sort of have two layers to this that I'm thinking I'll work sort of backwards with what you said. I think it's I see the cynicism on and negative uh, reactions in church folks, again, in my communities, in my experience, we're only speaking on that like personal level and and our observations. But like I see that cynicism stretch even when folks are just declaring because it's not I don't (laughs) queer folks aren't trying to convert straight folks. That narrative is so insipid and insidious throughout Christian and conservative talking points. They're just expressing their identity. There isn't the proselytization angle on it. But because that's what Christians do on the evangelical bend, they, they can't that. Yeah, right. They, they project it. They're like, oh, well, when I do this, I'm trying to change you to be like me. So I can't imagine a world where you're just expressing yourself. Because you must have ulterior motives because I do. And for the longest time, that is how I read that. And so I understand your cynicism in that. What I think, weirdly, one of the things that has changed my life so much for the better, I think, in that angle is being, as you so lovingly put it, a gigantic nerd. (laughs) Because one of the things that nerds do so well, not all of us, Uh, We can be very problematic with this, but our identity is attached to the knickknacks and the bric-a-brac that we accumulate, you know, the wearing of the pins and the shirts and Mm. and, you know, like stickers and Funko Pops and random things like that, that it's a proclamation of what we like and what kind of nerd we are. What subset of are you? Are you a role playing game nerd? Are you an anime nerd? Do you like adult cartoons? Do you like children's cartoons? Do you like fantasy? Or are you a science fiction nerd? By wearing the the paraphernalia and ephemera that makes up our identity, we're not so much saying you need to like the same things I am, but it's more that proclamation of this is what I like and this is the common ground we share. A good example for us is one of the days when we were walking away from the train I noticed you had a Gregory Allen Isakov sticker on the back of your car. And, True. And that was a bonding a, moment. Yeah. yeah was. It, it was bonding. It was a chance for me to say, oh, my gosh, we overlap here. Let's have a moment and geek out about this wonderful musician. Because we certainly didn't have enough in common. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what? Honestly, I think at that point we were still learning how much we had in common. True. True. Yeah. 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 Well, on that note, side note, check out Gregory Allen Isakoff anywhere you get your music because he's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. Um, yeah, no, I, I love that. And I agree. There is a level of, you know, the, there's this difference between I am alerting you of who I am and what I like in an attempt to bond. Right. Um, an attempt to form community, an attempt to identify solidarity. And then there is that identifying in a way that's like. I am trying to open up a conversion experience where there is a very one sided relationship that will exist because I am attempting to convince you of something. Do you remember the ichthys fish, the Christian fish that's like the two curves? Yeah, I remember. And I don't know how historically valid this is. I just remember what I was told, but like that it was a signal for like underground Christians at the time where they'd make one curve. 
in the sand. And if you were also a Christian, you'd make the other curve so that it like made the fish. And those are now bumper stickers everywhere. Oh, I did not know that background. Yeah, I don't. Again, I don't know how true it is. That's how it was told to me. Um, mm. I haven't gone through checking out, but it was this like, hey, I'm this thing. Yeah, me too. And that mm. motion was like identifying each other in an environment that was hostile to us. So like there's all of that being added sure. on. But I, but I think that it lost that after a while because it was, again, a proclamation with the ulterior motive of being uh, proselytizing in a way that I don't think most of the world outside of Christendom thinks of these markers. They're just like, oh, cool. So you're, you're saying that you are like that. OK, cool. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What's unique about the WWJD bracelet, and I would argue we could extend this thesis into a future episode. What I would argue about the WWJD bracelet that's unique, as well as the true love weights ring, Mm. is that it's not it's also about monitoring one's behavior. So it's not only about sending a message. It's also about it's also a mean it's a tool for keeping yourself in check. As opposed to, I think, the cross, the fish are more, um, I mean, maybe they're kind of gentle reminders of, oh, like Christ died for me. You know, maybe others will want to talk about the fact that Christ died on the cross, blah, blah, blah. The WWJD bracelet, and then I would argue the True Love Waits ring, you know, were both like there with the specific, you wore them with the specific goal of like, they will make you behave differently. So. Mm-hmm. My second point after proclamation was that the primary function was sin prevention. So I think that the WWJD bracelet was a tool for personal accountability. In addition to proclamation, it was there for personal accountability. It was a physical, ever-present thing because we like slept with them. I mean, I slept and showered with mine. Did Mm -hmm. you? Yeah. 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 I went through a phase where I did that. Yeah, this was definitely not kind of and actually going back to the friendship bracelet thing. It had that sort of like this is more of a permanent jewelry like mm-hmm. it wasn't a thing you took on and off depending upon your outfit for the day unless you were colors <laughs> unless you switched colors uh, well and also the purity ring because the purity ring was meant to be worn at all times as though it were a wedding band yeah so probably even more for the purity ring in some ways because that was usually like a finer piece of jewelry and i think had greater like sort of um weight in the sense that it was it was almost like a pre-engagement ring mm-hmm. so anyway so it's a physical ever-present thing that would allegedly, we can talk about this, kind of stop you in your tracks when you were about to sin and make you reconsider how Christ would handle the situation. So when I polled our listeners, um, this was by and large the thing that I heard about the most in terms of like, what do you, I asked, like, what do you associate with the WWJD bracelet? So could you read the second thing I have just sent you? This is a um, DM from one of our future listeners hmm. uh, responding to me about what the WWJD relationship meant to, I believe, her. Yeah. Hi, Teddy and Nick. I remember my church youth group gave everyone a bracelet and then had weekly check-ins where we discussed a time throughout the week where the bracelet made us reconsider our behavior. Like if I was tempted to not pray at lunch at school, I'd look down at my bracelet and see what would Jesus do and strive to be better, which meant have the courage to pray. Some kids' stories were intense. It prevented them from shoplifting or looking up, quote unquote, bad websites or saying something bad on AIM. Oh, my gosh. AIM. I I had to keep this one for that alone. AOL Instant Messenger. (laughs) Truthfully, though, we were all really good kids. So most of the time there wasn't much to report. (laughs) 
I mean, <laughs> I loved that. It's so relatable. So relatable. Like oh I was God. the good kid. I was terrified of doing something bad all the time already. I know. I I was playing this game with friends recently that was just like questions about you. And one was like, what is the most trouble you got into as a teenager? Oh, my God. I felt like an asshole, but I was sitting there like, I don't know. I I I don't don't know. (laughs) Like, you know, so I loved this, you know, for that reason. Also, Mm -hmm. I love the aim reference, but it also really gets at, I think, like the function of of the bracelet during that time, which was that it would prompt you to live differently. Mm-hmm. I remember. So I said I went through the phase where I wore it all the time, but I also had a phase where I was like, I loved the idea of getting ready in the morning. I don't, I don't know. Dad always got ready in the morning. So I thought I have to get. So I like had everything laid out on like my nightstand that I'd get ready in the morning. And my you had bracelet. A morning routine before the influencers did. Um, yeah, it's like an adorable little like child with dad thing. But- I love that. I remember in the morning being conflicted, like having a mini existential crisis as to whether or not I should have the letters facing in towards me or out towards anybody else. So like if I held up my wrist and read it, would I read the letters right side up or upside down? If I read them right side up, that meant it was targeting me and I needed the reminder. But if it was down and somebody else saw it, then they would be able to like, like it was like it was projecting the out. So it was like, oh, what's more important? What would Jesus do as a reminder for me to be better or to proselytize and have other people notice it? Oh, that's interesting. That's how much of a nervous kid I was. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely getting into some um, religious OCD category, I would say. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense. It also- how many times did you all say the sinner's prayer just so you wouldn't go to hell just in case? Just in case. Just one last time. One last last, time. One last time. I mean, I know I said it last night, but just in case. (laughs) The altar call that you did 27 times. (laughs) God. Um, And I think what's what's fascinating about what you just said, too, is that some of our listeners, when they were talking about WWJD, it was like twofold. So it was it was actually both of the things you're describing, but combined. So it was Mm -hmm. like in their experience, WWJD often prompted them to witness more. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, if they were like in the car with like a friend coming home from school, they'd like glance. One, my one friend said, oh, I like glanced down at my wrist and I was like, oh, I better have a conversation with my friend about Christ Mm -hmm. um, because of the bracelet. Right. What would Jesus do? Jesus would talk about himself. (laughs) Right. I also kind of did you catch that to the. um. Uh, what would Jesus do? Should I pray? <laughs> Should I pray? Yeah. Yes. yes, he would talk to his father, right? Right. Um, so, you know, that was a sort of, that. that's the most, th- those were the two most common, I think, like mm. functions of the bracelet. Would you argue that one was more powerful than the other or more persistent? Or can we even really separate them? The the proclamation, skin and sin. I keep saying skin prevention, which there is something there. There's definitely uh, something in that Freudian slip. I feel like if we were talking about um, the true love weights rings, it would be even more perfect. Yeah. Um, the skin bra. The skin I, um, I think that's the unique thing about the WWJD bracelet. Like, like, of course, there's something to both sides of it on all of these things. But I think the WWJD bracelet specifically was an identity marker. Like you said back about The Economist, 
that it was a unique question in the branding. Like the cross isn't a question, which I'm imagining a preacher has already started putting together a sermon about. The cross isn't a question. The purity ring isn't a question. These are all proclamations of something that is predetermined. Mm -hmm. Whereas the WWJD is a proclamation of a guiding question. Great. Yeah, that's a great way to articulate that. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? That being said, despite its popularity and pervasiveness, the WWJD bracelet still has provoked provoked controversy. Mm -hmm. Not as much as other artifacts we're going to talk about here. I think on the spectrum of like the most, you know, sort of benign to like the most potentially dangerous, I'd probably put WWJD more in the middle, leaning towards not that bad. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I'm not sure what's on the very far end. Maybe Hell House, something like Hell House. Uh, <laughs> and maybe veggie tales like on the far other end but it still has provoked critique so wwjd one of the most common critiques of the bracelet in among the ex-evangelical community which i would say that's us right is that the the bracelets rested heavily on the assumption that we are always on the brink of sinning that mm. we're always bad and that we're always about to do something sinful and need to sort of be reined in. And a few of our listeners, you know, remarked that that was something that was kind of damaging about the church as a whole, and that the WWJD phenomenon was like a great manifestation of the like, there is none righteous, no, not one, you're shit, you're always going to do something bad sort of philosophy. Yeah. So can you read point number four that I just sent you? This is another DM from a, a listener. Hey, so I remember WWG bracelets quite vividly. I actually had a bunch of them to match different outfits. <laughs> That's great. Uh, this might be a weird perspective, but I find the WWJD concept a little sad now when I look back on it as a non-Christian. I think the bracelet and things like it was just yet another reminder that I was bad to my core, that I was a sinner who at any point was going to do something wrong. So I needed a physical thing there constantly to remind me not to. I could reading maybe more into this, but it's what comes to mind. Since leaving the church, I've done a lot of work deprogramming the perspective that I'm always about to do something sinful. I now realize I'm a relatively good person who treats others well. I don't actually need something constantly telling me be good in all caps with a bunch of exclaims. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about that? Oh my gosh, that, that hits me to my core. I am reminded of like two conversations, uh, one from like my early deconstruction days and actually one from fairly recently. The early deconstruction phase was uh, somebody mentioning the question of like, why don't you murder? I heard a pastor say pastors used to say this thing all the time, like, well, you know, like, oh, that's what it is. I'm sorry. I was like piecing together the memory in my head and it all clicked. I had a a high school teacher in this private school stint say that like, well, you know, if the Bible isn't true, then we might as well go sleep with everyone we can think of and, you know, just murder people when we don't get our way and steal and rob. (laughs) And I just like his logic at the time was that's the that's the thing holding morality. There's no reason to do good. And again, it, it goes back to the something we've talked about where it's like, Either there is absolute truth and Jesus is true and yada, 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 or absolute hedonism. There's nothing 
in the middle there. Exactly. And my kind of response is like, yeah, you want to do murder and just like commit sexual misconduct and assault, like because you don't because because a Jewish carpenter didn't live 2000 years ago. Like, (laughs) I, I mean, like there's a lot of problems with that. And the conversation recently is, again, another nerd conversation about like why when you're playing a fantasy role playing game, do you ever do good? Like, why would you try to help someone who's in trouble in a fantasy game? Why wouldn't you just continue to take further advantage of them? Or uh, there's a there's a term in role playing games called murder hobo. Like you just you don't care about anything. You just do murders and commit crimes and accumulate wealth. And it's Mm -hmm. like, because I don't want to, like, I don't want to, I don't fantasize about doing murder. I fantasize about having resources and power to affect the world around me positive. Mm -hmm. That's what I fantasize about. Like winning the lottery for me isn't like escaping other people. It's about helping the people I love and care about and making the world better and doing good. There is a market for like, I am going to play with the idea of being bad. Like I'm thinking of something like Grand Theft Auto or like those sure. sorts of games. Right. Um, now I'm really headed into territory. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, sure. but yeah. that's the extent that I know that you go around killing people, maybe even raping people or something. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of problematic elements to GTA, but without getting too far into it, I will say that like a lot of that is built on like anarchist values. And so there's a way to read it slightly differently that I think is productive. But again, that all aside, like think about even just like games like Call of Duty and the fantasy of being military and murdering for points. Right. And I've I think there's too like a you know, I would be remiss not to say like there's some feminist critique that like women are often like, you know, treated really, really badly. Oh, and yeah. Anyway, you know, I think in general, though, like Christians are incapable of sort of like ex- like separating like thoughts from actions fantasies from Mm. you know those sorts of things but i think you're totally right in that you know we were sort of led to believe that the oh and you think about it oh my god imagine if morality was actually this fragile that the only thing holding us back from like not going and and doing horrible things we're not talking about shoplifting i mean they would use that you're exactly right they would use that example all the time what is keeping what is keeping you then right if you were to lose your faith what would keep you then from not just going out and killing people and i remember sitting there as like a little girl being like oh maybe maybe i would kill people <laughs> like i i rem- I, I exactly the same thing like i remember being afraid of like oh my god if i lose my faith am i going to be a murderer am right. i just going to jeffrey dahmer a bunch of people if i you know like am not with jesus the depravity that they presented as so inevitable mm. and so easy to slip into was really outrageous, Absolutely. you know? Um, and so the, in some ways, the WWJD bracelet is an intervention in mm. that process, right? It's coming in and it's saying, why the idea left? that yeah. that little like shred of fabric is going to like prevent me from actually like doing things that I, Oh my gosh. And so it's a little laughable. Just on the verge of killing someone. But then I looked down at my tie dye WWJD bracelet and I was like, you know what? <laughs> Hammer in hand above my enemies. Oh no. 
Christ wouldn't uh, go Jesus this wouldn't route. do this. This wouldn't be. I, I feel like maybe there's a different way. Hammer mm-hmm. What the fuck does that mean? That was a common thing that I got from people. This idea that like WWJD was often like infantilizing. It kind of treated us as children that needed to constantly be watched and, and sort of monitored in a message exchange with another anonymous list- listener. She specifically said that the WWJD bracelet reminds her of like those parents who will hang up a picture of Santa or like constantly remind their kids like Santa, mm. will come, you know, or like the elf on a shelf thing. Yeah. Oh, even better. Yeah. This was a millennial. So like pre-elf on the shelf, but that's even better that the WWJD bracelet is just like a Santa complex in some Uh ways. It's a reminder that someone's always watching, that you need that constant, even especially this, that you need that constant reminder that you wouldn't do good otherwise, or you wouldn't even just do neutral things otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that without that reminder, you're bad to your core, you know, you just get cold otherwise. Which which is really funny because it's very contrary to one of the ways that I think about morality now, which is if you have motivation of reward or punishment, then your choices aren't necessarily indicative of your personal moral. Like it's, you know, I, I love sitcoms. So I'm thinking of like the good place. The ending conundrum of that is like, if you know that the good place waits you for you if you do good then you don't get points towards going to the good place for your actions because you know you're going to be rewarded for doing good so like but that's the entire makeup is like why are you good because jesus wants me to be good because i'll go to heaven or even if you want to get more theologically nuanced you could say like oh i'm good because of this thing good that was done for me And that makes me want to do good things for others. And it's like, okay, but again, you're still coming back to the only attainable way to do good is by having something good or being saved from something bad. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, you know, now that I'm outside the church and I've had to construct sort of my own moral system, which Christians would hate to hear is actually not that radically different from when I lost a bunch of listeners (laughs) from when I was a Christian. I think, though, I'm not entirely sure why I always do good things. I don't really, you know, I mean, I don't really have the, I haven't cracked that code, you know, like what makes me do a good thing versus a bad thing always. I would argue it's probably a moot point to some degree um, mm-hmm. and that you get in a lot of trouble almost trying to figure that out too much. It's yeah. like sometimes I just do good things because I know on some intrinsic level it makes me feel better mm-hmm. about the world. Um, yeah. And I am sure that Christians would say that's some sort of like, you know, inherent um, kind of God image right of in me. Mm. I think that a probably ultra secular person would just sort of say, like, you know, it's a series of chemicals that kick in and make you feel good when you hold the door for someone. You know, there's, but I think you're totally you're totally right that, you know, the point that so many Christians make is that if if what's keeping you in line is pure f- fear of punishment, how sincere, valuable, noble is that behavior mm-hmm. to begin with? And and you said something, I think, early on that like emphasizes that, that I want to like latch onto is like you said, oh, I kind of make my own, you know, moral choices. You know, I hate to use the word situationally, but like situationally, uh, which isn't much different from what you did then, which is so true. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> like, right. We, because what would Jesus do? That is a meaningless question. 
in some valences. Like, what would Jesus do? I don't know. Probably like with a computer, like you're about to go on a bad website. What would Jesus do? I don't know. Probably freak out at the fact that there's a computer in front of him. And what is this witchcraft? Because he's from 2000 years ago before they had computers. Right. Or like, what would Jesus do? I don't know. Yell at a tree because it didn't have a piece of fruit for him. Or mm-hmm. like probably tell you sell everything you own and redistribute the wealth of the wet of the rich to the poor because no one should be without. It's either absurd because of like the logistical elements of Jesus's humanity, or it's probably not what you think Jesus would do. It's not what do you think Jesus would do about the situation, which is ultimately what the question means. It was treated as though you as a 20th or 21st century individual can divine what this half human, half deity from 2000 years ago would do and that that conclusion you drew would be useful. Like there's so many steps before those letters are actively useful in mm. your moral calculations that it, it's it's ultimately you just deciding what you think would be good or what you've been programmed by your environment to think is good. Yeah. And you pretty much stole my final point. So in some ways, this Sorry. is just going to be this is great. Because I was going to say that the most, at least that I've encountered, the most persistent modern day critique from both ex-evangelicals and but also even some current evangelicals. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is that WWJD is actually an impossible question to answer that if so much is going to hinge on this question, it should at least be a little easier to answer. And it's not that it's really tricky. It's asking us what Jesus, a particular specific time-bound figure would have done when faced with contemporary modern problems in highly specific nuanced situations. Right. (laughs) So a lot of people, their beef with WWJD is that it is simply a time where people can sort of advocate their own interpretation of scripture or sometimes your just own interpretation of morality because the scriptures simply just don't talk about the issue that's at hand. So for instance, like there's, there's just, like you said, there's no way of knowing what Christ would have wanted us to do with bad content on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we can extract some kind of broad biblical truth, but then we're still within the game of application, right? And kind of like reinterpreting a biblical message, you know, in, onto biblical, onto modern day situations. Interestingly, then there are critiques from people within the church who say that due to the highly specific nature of these situations and the fact that the Bible just doesn't speak on everything, that the WWJD bracelet often promoted a kind of, quote, situational ethics mm-hmm. where, you know, we were all just sort of sitting where we're all just sitting around constantly kind of making up what we think Christ would have done. So in a blog post written from Christian scholar Matthew McConnell, Situational Ethics and WWJD, he says something interesting. Could you read point number five? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> the bracelet worn with the WWJD letters on it do not press the young Christian teenager to pick up his Bible in a given situation, if he owns one, <laughs> <laughs> but rather to come up on his own or what he thinks to be the truth 
it begs the question, what do I think Jesus would do in a given situation? There is a grave problem here since what I think may not align with what the Bible says. Ask 10 teenage boys to give an answer on how far one should go on a date, the girl, and you will have 10 answers. But what does the Bible say? Honestly, this kind of cracks me up because it's yeah. because whether people want to admit it or not, this problem exists with or without the WWJD bracelet. Like mm-hmm. Christians are actually constantly having to evaluate and decipher what's godly because, of course, the Bible doesn't speak on all the things <laughs> like yeah. you know, these 20th and 21st century modern problems. They're saying that, you know, a bracelet or the question, like, what would Jesus do? It causes too much speculation. It causes too much like situational analysis. But what they're forgetting is that 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 is what Christian morality is now, because we have one text mm-hmm. that doesn't take into account every single thing. <laughs> I don't know. I... It latches on to and, and this is a deeper issue that we don't need to really sit too tangled up in but like interpreting the text so many christians talk about like the plain reading of the text of the bible and how if you just read it for what it is they use phrases like that yeah uh, you'll be able to understand the answer to any problem it'll be a manual for whatever problem you could have and there are some that that some readings that are a bit more generous that say like oh the bible is a tool of wisdom And it'll, you know, give you principles and trajectories and like, okay, I can I can understand that. And I appreciate that perspective more than the plain reading. But ultimately, what you're getting at is not like the Bible doesn't tell you how far you should go, you know, acceptably on a date with a girl because its comments about romance are really wonky and crazy and not built to standards that we know are acceptable these days, you know. Or or they'll say things like, well, it depends on who owns her. <laughs> like, how right. much are you prepared to give her father if you go too far? There are really problematic components of the Bible that people have to overlook whenever coming up with their trajectories. Because like you said, it's it's temporally bound and there are so many problems with interpretation that like get ignored. Like mm-hmm. you said, this is the situation for everyone at all times with the Bible. And with biblical, quote unquote, morality. Right. What this I think the WWJD bracelet gets at and what people find frustrating about it is a truth that exists, whether the bracelet was in in the conversation or not, which is that the Bible sometimes vague, it's sometimes full of contradictions. It's sometimes simply non applicable or irrelevant to the highly specific problems that we experience as as modern day people. Um, I even remember being a little kid and kind of dwelling over like the Ten Commandments and thinking, thou shalt not lie. Okay. But the Bible also tells me to like be gracious and kind. So like, is it okay to lie sometimes, you know? And a religious text is never going to be, I mean, I've encountered all religious texts, but the Bible's not going to be able to account for that kind of nuance. Mm. So in some ways, yes, asking what would Jesus do is only ever a thought exercise. Right. Which, listen, thought experiments are a key part of moral and ethical philosophy. When we interrogate what the right thing to do is, we need to speculate and we need to use thought experiments. And in that sense, it it is somewhat helpful to think to yourself, what would the most pure and perfect person I can imagine do in this scenario? 
but recognizing that you are still projecting your ideas of goodness and purity and perfection onto that person rather than actually like use a $50 word here deontologically or like reaching out to an external source you're still constructing that person right which i think is the thing that no one that most people in church don't want to admit because as you probably remember from your own experience of of deconstructing it's i feel like that's one of those questions maybe that and the suffering topic where like you feel like you open the door a little bit and the flood comes in you know in terms of like oh god like you know all of a sudden like it pierces a lot of holes right in the christian worldview my guess is that it's actually something that can be negotiated and, and reconciled. I'm sure there are lots of, you know, more liberal thinkers who do, but it's scary to think about because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's opening up the door. It's opening up the possibility that the thing that you think is going to provide black and white truth actually does not, which is a bummer. That's a bummer, you know? It really is. And, you know, <laughs> like, I never used to understand when I was really in Christian subculture and really like firm in my beliefs, I never understood when atheists or or secular folks would say that, oh, you're just holding on to your faith because it's comfortable. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It challenges me to be better every day. And like, I'd give that sort of like narrative of how like Jesus asks too much of me. That's why it's good. Right. I'm trying harder than everybody. I'm working harder than everybody else here. Exactly. But like on this side of that conversation, I look at it and I go, okay, it's not that (laughs) I'm putting in so much work. That's not the thing that makes it comforting or not comforting. It's the fact that you can sort of sit back and rest on. I hold at least the key to black and white answers to Mm -hmm. something that's going to give me an absolute sense of direction and purpose and meaning and goodness because i think we want good and beautiful and true things but what the wwgd bracelet sort of represents is that i've got this thing attached to me at all times i've got this uh question that will lead to a black and white good, beautiful, and true answer always. It's a formula for uh, uh, spiritual success. Yes. That's, I think, key. What the last thing you just said is that what the assumption is, is that it will link back. It's like a link back Mm. to scripture, right? But what's interesting and what, you know, now a lot of people have critiqued is that it's not super scripture dependent even in the original novel so going back to that 1897 text from what i can see the pastor's prompt right so remembering he said you know for a year do what would jesus do doesn't seem to lead any of the congregation to do any like deeper scriptural reading and in fact there's like very little scripture in the entire novel so it's not like we see situations where they're like mulling over scripture or like you know, the, where the, the novelist is like dropping scriptures. It's mostly just people pausing and considering what Christ would have done and coming to their own conclusion. At the end of the day, it's an ethical exercise mm-hmm. where no one really has the answer. Yeah. You know, I guess at the end of the day, it's all a guessing game, the WWJD thing. 
um, which isn't something any of us, you know, well, a lot of us would have wanted to get wanted, wanted to say, but it's a guessing game. It's all coming down to your interpretation of what this, you know, savior figure would have done in a particular situation. If that got you to live differently and maybe got you to live better, that's great. Um, but in the end, I think what most of the critiques seem to suggest is that it was dependent a lot upon um, guilt. It was dependent a lot upon fear of, you know, being punished. And that at the end of the day, it did not provide as much of a strict, you know, clear cut formula as we would have liked that in the end, it's kind of just people sitting around going like guessing. Right. So in some ways, it's like it's the board game. <laughs> it's just a big guessing game. <laughs> you can choose A, B, C or whatever. Or choose your own adventure. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming episode releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on sites like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So make sure to search for us and chat with us in those places. Oh, and one last thing. We'd be so grateful if you rated the podcast. It'll keep us visible and ensure that others hear about us. Thanks again for joining us on this journey of remembering. Talk to you soon.